in the Pew Bible, there, page 552, we'll be reading Psalm 2, the text for us this morning. Psalm number 2, again, if you're using the Pew Bible, that's page 552. text says here, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And now as we prepare for the preaching of the word, let us go once more before the Lord in prayer. O great God in heaven, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And now we come to hear you speaking to us. You, the great king of all creation, we ask that you would indeed speak to us from your servant. That you would watch over the words of my sinful lips and you would watch over the meditations of all of our hearts as the psalmist prays in Psalm 19 that you would bless us. For Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. And it is in your name, O Lord, we pray. Amen. So many of you likely are familiar with Psalm 1. It speaks of the blessed man. We read of that man who meditates upon the word of the Lord day and night. And so here we have in Psalm 2 a clear contrast from that. The blessed man who is meditating upon the word versus the cursed men of the earth who are plotting against the Lord and against his anointed, seeking to overthrow the bondage that they feel he has set over them. Well, in, the, in Psalm 1 we have the model for the believer what it is you are supposed to do as a believer. You are not to be mingling with the unbelievers seeking to adopt their ways, but, but rather meditating on the word that the word is your guide. The culture does not guide you, but the word of God guides you. Here in Psalm 2, we read of the nations who have rejected the Lord. And so we hear in this psalm two things specifically. We hear the word of God speaking out against the nations. But we also hear in Psalm 2 that the Lord is speaking out of the, against the nations not merely in condemnation, but in hope. What is it that the psalm is calling the nations to do but to come and serve the Lord? 
for the elect of every nation to come and kiss the Son. Now, in the original context, of course, this would have been written to Jews, written and read by Jews. But it would also be known by the Gentile nations that the Gentile nations are being called out to come and serve the Lord. And they are being told where it is that they are to serve the Lord because the Lord has set his king on the throne in Zion. So the nations are come to seek this king where they would receive peace and blessing. A king that was promised to Abram there in Genesis 12. The seed of Abram. And they come and they worship this king. And receive blessing. There is a service to the king, of course, in the original context. We would see David and his descendants that they would come and serve the king and worship with the king. But I think all of us know in this part of the history of redemption that there is one great king that is declared here in Psalm 2. As we work through the psalm, we'll hopefully make that unavoidably clear. That this psalm is speaking of the one great king, son of Abram and son of David. Well, the first point here is that the nations are foolishly opposing the Lord. But what they're called to do, they must submit to His king, the Lord's king. We see that in verses 1 through 6. While they are opposing the Lord, they are called and must submit to the king. The nations we read in verse 1 are plotting and raging. They're not content with this benevolent monarchy of the Lord who reigns over all the earth. It is a good monarchy. The Lord reigns and does right. The Lord is just and good. He brings rain upon the lands, on both the just and the unjust. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And so it is a benevolent monarchy of the Lord. Even the nation of Israel opposes the kingship of the Lord. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The nations come to the prophet Samuel and they say, Give us a king like the nations. And they're not opposing Samuel there. What they're opposing is the Lord God Almighty who reigns in heaven. He is king over all the earth. He is the one that they have opposed and plotted against. And that is Israel who is plotting and raging against him there in 1 Samuel 8. Well, what does verse 1 also tell us? Do they find success in their plotting and raging against the Lord? Well, verse 1 tells us that it's done in vain. The Lord is not an earthly, physical, limited, finite king. The Lord's supremacy will not be opposed because he cannot be opposed by man without there being repercussions. The Lord will not hold them unpunished. Well, these kings of the earth, they're, they're taking counsel together. They're setting themselves together. They know that they, can, they don't have enough power in and of themselves to plot against the Lord. So they're, they're taking counsel with other nations that they can seek to plot against the Lord together. This is something that we see in Genesis as well. In Genesis 11, right before Abram is called, We see all of the nations plotting together and coming to oppose the Lord, building the Tower of Babel into heaven. 
seeking to make themselves God or at least to gain heaven and a heavenly throne apart from the Lord and his grace. Well, what does the Lord do? What does it tell us there in Genesis 11? It it tells us that their, their great feet is so small that the Lord has to come down to see the Tower of Babel. This is how fickle our works and plotting against the Lord is. It does nothing to the Lord. His kingship is not opposed or threatened at all by any threat of the nations around us. Or by any threat of our own hearts, beloved. Yes, they are plotting against the Lord, but it tells us there in verse 2 that he is plotting against, the nations are plotting against the Lord's anointed, the Lord's king. Well, many of you likely know that the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah, the word from which we get Messiah. So they're plotting against the Lord's Messiah. And the Greek word for that is Christ. This would be the word that's used for any king that is anointed to the throne. Anyone who is anointed is a Messiah, is a Christ. So they're plotting against those who are anointed in the name of the Lord that have received the oil upon their head, been anointed to the office of kingship. They're plotting against the king of Israel. The one who is seated on this seat of grace. What did Genesis 12 tell us? It tells us that the nations will come and bless Abram and receive blessing. How is it that the the nations will come and find blessing? It is by serving the anointed one of Israel and worshiping God with him. This is the seed of grace to the people of Israel, but also to the people of all the earth. Jerusalem is the Lord's throne on earth. When the temple is built there on the mount, it is the throne of the Lord God Almighty. They are coming, yes, to serve the king, the Lord's anointed, but they are coming ultimately to serve the king of all creation who sits on the throne of grace. There above the cherubim on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Jerusalem is the throne on earth in the place of meeting with the Lord. The one place that the people of the earth can come and meet with God. That's what we do today here in worship. We come to meet with God as he has made himself available wherever two or more are gathered in his name. But in the Old Testament, in the time of Israel, this is the only place to meet with God. There in Jerusalem, on Zion. What are they trying to do? The nations aren't coming to serve the king. They're not coming to worship the Lord. But they're seeking to throw off his bonds and cords that we see there in verse 3. They see the Lord's sovereignty not as grace upon grace, but as tyranny. They cannot live as they want to live. They cannot live in sensuality. They cannot live in pride and arrogance. They cannot live upon their own morals because they have the bonds and cords of the Lord upon them. And they don't want to submit to that tyranny. What does the Lord do? The text tells us 
that the Lord is not concerned at all. Already we know from verse 1 that it is in vain that they're plotting against him, but here we see in verse 3, sorry, rather, verse 4, that the Lord first tells us is in heaven. He is still on the throne. He has not been usurped and pulled from the throne of heaven. But he is reigning, and he responds in laughter. The idea that the nations are opposing the Lord is so preposterous that the Lord is able to sit on his throne and laugh at their efforts. He is not threatened. Two thoughts here come from Calvin. He says that the Lord, first, does not need armies. The Lord does not need to make his own armies and then set them against the world. As they're plotting against him, he does not then have to plot and make his counter plans against the world. He doesn't need armies, Calvin tells us and points out very helpfully. And the second is that the Lord, this one is a bit harder. The Lord permits evil so that good may come of it. The nations may plot against Israel. And we see throughout the Old Testament where good, righteous kings are fighting against the Assyrian armies. Against the Babylonian armies that are coming in and mocking God. And there is starvation to the point of death. There is difficulty in those times. And Calvin wants us to understand that just because you serve the Lord does not mean that all will be well and good. This is not prosperity gospel, what we're reading here in Psalm 2. But it is good. The Lord is working good because it is according to his plan. He's not making counter plans because the Lord has already set in place his eternal plan. And it is for the best of his people. We think of the Babylonian exile. What was it to do but to bring back the people to reverence before the Lord that they would come back and worship the Lord? And also that the nations would hear more about the Lord as they see the example of men like Daniel and Esther living in exile, living for the Lord God Almighty who reigns in heaven. Well, what does it say that they are? The Lord is laughing at them, but the point of he is laughing and even holding them in derision. I didn't know what this word means, so if you don't know what derision means, don't worry about it. I'll I'll tell you, it means that he is holding them in contemptuous ridicule and mockery. That way we can all laugh. The Lord is in heaven laughing and holding them in contemptuous mockery so that we can all laugh and know that the Lord is sovereign and working good for us, even though it may still be hard for us even though we may be on the brink of death or death itself. We may laugh at the work of the Lord, knowing that he is still sovereign. But he doesn't just mock them. He doesn't just laugh and give us an opportunity to rejoice in the sovereignty. But it tells us here there is a promise that wrath will be poured out. There in verse 5, the Lord speaks to them in his wrath. 
He does not hold the guilty unpunished. But he speaks to them in his wrath. And he will hold them accountable for their opposition to his name and to his anointed. They find no comfort, blessing, or refuge in their opposition. Where is the nation of Babylon now? The Lord poured out his wrath upon the nation of Babylon. We can look at any kingdom of the, of the ages past and see that the Lord does not hold the kingdoms of the earth. Does not allow them to get away with guilt. Does not hold them un, un, unpunished. But he pours out his wrath upon them. The Lord terrifies them in his fury. His terror is perceived in the words which follow. We might expect that he's, he's going to create this army, this angel army of flaming chariots of fire that would go out and, and conquer the armies of the world. But what is, what is it that he speaks to them? What is this word of wrath, this promise, this edict of fury that he, he declares? They've set themselves, they've made their own kings, they've decided who is to reign amongst themselves. Well, the Lord says, as for me, I have set my king in Zion. On my holy hill. His kingdom is tied to Zion there in the Old Testament. We see that it is tied to Zion not because the the anointed son of David is there. Not because Solomon reigns, but because there is a king that is reigning on the throne of grace. In the holy of holies, in the temple, his locus of worship. We see in 2 Samuel 7 that the Lord makes a covenant with David that he shall be the father of his son and his son will be a son to him. Speaking to David. David desires to build a house for the Lord there. And the Lord says, you will not build my house. I will build your house. And it will be an eternal kingdom. With an eternal king. He will be to me a son and I will be to him a father. Well, we could think of many examples of a, of a futile attempt to oppose kingdoms here on earth. Perhaps many of you are familiar with November 5th and Guy Fox. As the poem goes, remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason, and plot. I can think of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. And the poem goes on to declare that the providence of God or the grace of God protected the kingdom of England from being opposed by the Catholic rebels who are seeking to bring down King James and the entire parliament. Now this is not the same king and not the same parliament that brought about the Westminster standards that would come later, but it was the workings of that, preparing for a Puritan parliament. And so we as Presbyterians here in this day can look to that and find blessing and preservation of the Lord and his king the king of England. Even though King James was not a good king, we have very many blessings from the kingship of King James. 
many of you are likely thinking of the Bibles that we use. The King James Bible came about under the reign of King James of England. The gunpowder plot was in 1605. Very popular King James Version came about in 1611. So we can see that the Lord is working providence and preserving his church, preserving his name, even as Calvin has declared, through very wicked men, very wicked kings, who do not love God, and yet the church prospers under their reign. So what do we do here on earth? What is our call from this psalm? We must submit to our rulers here on earth. So Romans 13 tells us, the rulers are set there by the Lord. If we are going to be good reformed, good biblical Christians, we must understand that the Lord is sovereign over everything. And he sets his rulers in place. We, we easily and often look to scripture and we criticize those in the, in the word for their opposition and disobedience. And yet in doing so, we think that we have put, made ourselves to be more righteous because we would never do what they have done. We would never oppose the Lord's anointed. Would we oppose the Lord's elected officials? How do we respect men who hate God and yet rule over us? It is through love and prayer, recognizing that the Lord has set them in place. The Lord is working even when it seems and feels as though he's not. When we oppose the rulers set over us, we're opposing those whom God has set in place. We are opposing God when we oppose our rulers. There's another way we do this. When we are characterized not by confidence, in the Lord's sovereignty. When we are terrified day by day about what will happen. We are demonstrating that we've forgotten that God is sovereign over all things. I'm not telling you, and the word is not telling you, that we do not make plans. That we do not seek to have righteous rulers over us. But what the word is telling us is that we must respect those who are over us. Respecting our parents, respecting our governing officials. So all of the children in the room here have a direct application. That the Lord's anointed is for you, your father and mother. You are respecting those authorities set over you. And all of us now have opportunity as well to see that we have many who are set over us. That we are to respect and honor, not because those men and women deserve the honor, because our God who set them in place over us deserves that honor. The kings of the earth, they've neglected the God of heaven. So what we do is not seek and plot rebellion against them. But we pray and seek to work change, praying for their hearts that the Lord would work in them, working through the righteous means to bring about renewal in the land. 
We are blessed to live in a land that allows us to work in such a way, to elect officials that will rule and govern in a more righteous way. Well, as these kings, they've neglected the kings of the earth. Coming back now then to the original context, their anointed one, their Messiah, their Christ, they've neglected the king of Judah the lowercase c, Christ, living there and reigning in Judah. Here we see great significance of this passage in our own context, our own historical redemption. Jesus is, of course, the perfect Messiah. He is the Christ. He reigns supreme. He is the king, and we submit to his reign because he is king over Israel, and he sits in Zion, reigning. You do know that Christ, Jesus, was reigning in the Old Testament. Pre-incarnate Christ was reigning in the Old Testament. He is eternally begotten of the Father. And so we see that he is reigning in Zion. This is why the Lord can look to Zion and point to his king. Because ultimately, we submit to Christ. We submit to the rulers on earth, but if it opposes the rule of Christ, if it opposes the teachings of the word of God, we do not submit to the point of sin. This brings us then to the final point. The Lord proclaims his decree to the nations. He has responded to the nations. They must submit to his king and find blessings. So the first point is that they submit to his king, but the second point is they submit not to their destruction, but they submit to blessing. It is only those who have opposed the Lord and his anointed who find destruction. Those who submit to him find blessing, as we see there in verses 7 through 12. The Lord gives his decree. He tells the world that his anointed king in Judah is his son. He says there in 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And this is exactly what he prophesied there to David in that Davidic covenant. The king of Judah is the son of God, lowercase s. And yet, I did not have a chance to look at the um, Pew Bible, but here if anyone's using the ESV and and I'd be interested to know afterward, anyone who is looking at the Pew Bible or your own Bibles, how does the Bible translator translate these words? I don't mean what do the words say, but what is, is it uppercase or lowercase? Here in the ESV, we see the Lord's anointed is capital A. When it says there in verse 12, kiss the son, it is a capital S. Because the ESV translators know that this is not just the king who's reigning in Judah currently. It is speaking of the king who is coming, riding on a donkey. It is speaking of the king who reigns eternally. That is the king, the anointed one in mind here in this psalm. He says, ask of me in verse 8, and I will make the nations your heritage. He's speaking to this ruler 
reigning there, his son. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So we see here that the promise is that the Lord is going to bring all of the earth under subjection, under the feet of this son, the ruler of Israel. Now, if we look back, we could go back and look at other passages in the Old Testament. Does this promise ever take place in the Old Testament? Does the fulfillment, rather, of this promise ever take place in the Old Testament? Where do we see this taking place? We see this taking place in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus ascends up into heaven, sits at the throne at the right hand of the Father, reigning. And as we'll look at tonight, that promise is, is reinforced by Psalm 110, that all of the nations are his footstool, submitting to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the king that the Jews are waiting for. This is the king that we have, beloved. And what does he say? It says that you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The anointed is the one who will exercise this wrath of God upon the land. He alone as the Christ, capital C, he alone has the authority to exercise the wrath of God without himself incurring guilt. Because if we look back there in 2 Samuel chapter 7, why is it that David cannot build the temple? It's because he is a man of blood guilt. But the Lord Jesus Christ is not a man of blood guilt because he perfectly fulfilled the law. He did not commit one sin and yet he bore all of our sins that we may sit here today in blessed assurance that we will be in heaven with him one day. Now, therefore, O kings, the text tells us in verse 10, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. What is the beginning of wisdom? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so when it says be wise, be warned, we should see that clear connection that it is calling them to fear the Lord. The Lord is calling them to wisdom and admonishing them to abandon their plotting and scheming against the Lord. It says, serve the Lord with fear. Again, echoing that same theme. And rejoice with trembling, fearing the Lord. Because that is the beginning of wisdom. This service in reverence allows us to rejoice even if we are rejoicing and trembling, because the Lord is all-powerful and almighty. True joy only comes from fearful and reverent service to the Lord. And then through that relationship with Him, the love drives out the fear. But it begins with fearful fearful reverence coming before the Lord. And what are we enabled to do? We are able then to kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. We are called then to submit to the Lord, to kiss the Son, 
But then it's this strange clause here. It says to us, strange not because it's unbiblical, strange just because perhaps it's not familiar to us. It says that his wrath is quickly kindled. You might think to yourself, well, I thought the Lord was long-suffering. Does this passage contradict the fact that the Lord is long-suffering? It might at first glance seem that way. But even the very words that it is calling them to repentance tells us that it's not contradicting that passage. If he did not call them to repentance and merely acted out in wrath, we would perhaps have a case to say that the Lord is not long-suffering. But of course, we use Scripture to read and understand other parts of Scripture. And we know that the Lord is long-suffering, so when it says here that His wrath is quickly kindled, it is speaking of the judgment day. The day when the Lord will come in wrath to break the nations with a rod of iron and shatter them like potter's vessels. Calvin once again says here that this is the test of our faith in the Lord. Do we embrace his son? The Lord is robbed if we do not kiss his son. Calvin says. Not to say that the Lord is gaining something from us, but that he is asking of us to come and submit and receive blessing. This is what you owe the Lord, is submission and reverence, kissing the Son. And then it says, finally, in, in verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That we do not receive then the condemnation and wrath poured out, but we receive blessing upon blessing, lavished upon us, as Ephesians tells us. Every blessing in the spirit, heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So lest, lest you are now sitting in your pew, sitting in your seat, trembling, how can I come before this Lord who pours out wrath upon those who oppose Him? Is it not better that I seek to get as far from Him as possible? Well, even to the wicked nations, even to you, O Gentile, He is calling you. Come. There is no peace anywhere else. You cannot go to another nation. The dominion of the Lord spreads to all the earth. There is nowhere you can go to flee from Him. Come to the Lord. Take refuge and find blessing. This is a proclamation. This is a declaration that has power. We could think once, once more to a historic event. The Emancipation Proclamation that was declared from the North, declaring all the slaves in the South in the middle of the Civil War. Did that proclamation have any power in the South? No, because they did not respect the authority of the North. When that proclamation went out from the ruler of the land, he was not respected as an authority. Well, the Lord here has told us that he has made a declaration he has answered and said, speaking fury and wrath, I have set my king in Zion on my holy hill. 
Here we have a contrast. It's not an empty proclamation that does nothing to free or bring blessing. But it is a powerful proclamation that will surely be enacted. It will take place, beloved. We submit to Jesus' reign in our hearts and we find blessing. The call to the nations is a fulfillment of Genesis 12 that they are coming to Abram to bless him and find blessing. Bless the Lord, beloved, and find blessing. This means submission to his rule on earth, yes. Submission to his divinely appointed rulers, yes. But ultimately, it means submission in every day of life. When we experience trials and difficulties, when we experience terrors and temptations, where do we flee to, beloved? We cannot flee away from Christ because we think that there is only condemnation in the Lord. But we must flee to Christ because that is the only source of blessing and peace. We trust that the Lord is sovereign and he calls us to him. Under his rule, we seek and find blessing. This means that we must reject our beloved sins. We do not justify our sins and think, it's just a little thing. Nobody knows about this. It's just in my heart. It's just in my mind. It's just at work. It's just wrong. This calls us to flee to Christ. We do not justify our sins but the Lord, but we we submit them to him and we repent because he bore those sins, that we may come and worship him and find blessing. This is an amazing thing, beloved. Do not turn from it. This means reverence before the Lord. We're not just, we're not the determiner of the Lord's worship. I'm sure that Pastor Sharp in his time going through the Presbyterianism has talked about the regulative principle of worship. Do we get to decide what the Lord wants in worship? I think he'd like cake this week. We come to the Lord and we worship him as he has told us he wants to be worshipped. He determines how he will be approached. But he promises us that when we approach him in this manner, he will bless us. It might not make sense to us, but when we do what he has told us to do, when we come to him and and offer ourselves up and say, this is what you have asked for, O Lord. He has promised that obedience is better than sacrifice. The Lord has given us abundant blessing in his son. And unlike the slaves who sought blessing in their freedom through the Emancipation Proclamation, we are enabled to kiss the son, to take on those bonds and those cords, to submit ourselves to slavery in Christ so that we can have blessing in our slavery to the Son. And this is manifested in service to Him through loving adoration. This is what He has called us to, beloved. And this is a promise that we have of blessing. Now let us go to Him in prayer. Great God in heaven, we are humbled by your presence. We are humbled by your love. As we see these words of wrath and condemnation, we know that we are amongst those nations that seek to oppose you. 
were it not for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the mediation of the Spirit and of the Son, we would be not only dead spiritually, but physically seeking to oppose you with every fiber of our being. Thank you for calling us out of the darkness of this world and into your marvelous light. Help us, O Lord, this week to seek you, to honor your name, to submit to you, to repent of our sins and turn to you and find blessing. Bless us, O Lord, we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. The final hymn for us then, as we meditate on these things, is that we may indeed have joy in all the world. Joy to the world, hymn number 149.